Uh, so we have moved uh, out of Ephesians, and now we're back in Genesis. We started Genesis some time ago, but we also had a big break because we started the Ephesians back in April and just finished it. So there's been a gap, hasn't there? Um, so we're going to go ahead and uh, pray right now, and then I'll read you the passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Word of God, and we thank you for this church body. We thank you that you are real and tangible, and we can cling to you, and you're not some distant being, but you're much bigger and much bigger still. Father, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you for this weather. Um, You talk about, especially in the Old Testament, that your people suffer because of their lack of thanksgiving. We just do thank you, Lord God. Thank you for the healing and the relationships, but we thank you also for the Word of God something true and tangible. Father, would you bless uh, Gunnar and uh, Rick, help them to um, understand, to communicate well, uh, to be stretched, uh, to be encouraged, and then be motivated to even go into the greater depths uh, in the Spanish language, but also help them to see you as a God that can speak Spanish and English and Hebrew and Greek and, and so on and so on. You are God, and we just fall down in our Feet, uh, at your feet, because you are so big and vast. Bless the reading of this word, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're picking up uh, in Genesis 37. Genesis 37. It's our last portion of uh, the book of Genesis. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read to you part of our passage. I'm not going to read all of Genesis 37 right now, uh, but uh, and we're reading out of NASB 95 edition because that's what Gunner likes. Um, uh, verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel... Uh, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to the dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding our sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaves rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him, saying to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the sayings in his mind. I'll stop there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Would you please communicate uh, through my mouth and through the Holy Spirit into our hearts the truths of your word. Uh, shut out those things that are superfluous, that, that uh, don't really matter, and help us to really latch on to the things that, that you're um, trying to personalize to each of us in the curriculum of growth that we've experienced this week and the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, have you ever found yourself, regretful, regretfully so, to have been uh, 
too transparent with a given audience. And no doubt many of us have suffered uh, the displeasure of others from something shared that was not well received. Uh, Perhaps having shared too much about your opinions on various subjects or an indiscretion maybe that you committed in the past and you wanted to talk about it or, or even some very personal weakness that you endure has caused others to now see you in a disfavorable light. Well, today we're going to focus on one of the great heroes of the Bible, Joseph. And both Joseph and Daniel stand out as just impeccable young men. Just impeccable. Um, but it's, they, they are impeccable in the midst of the fact that they were suffering. They were suffering and they still stood, stood strong. In Joseph's case, he shares a dream with his family and it really turns his life upside down. It affects everything. Now, we're back in Genesis and we picked up, we're picking up with our last major character, Joseph. Um, the major characters uh, were pretty much uh, Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob or Israel and now Joseph. When we come across those characters, those very real people in our journey through Genesis, where God tracks to us the revelation of this thing called the seed of the woman. Remember that? The seed of the woman? A little review here. Um, we want, we started in creation and then quickly, uh, Adam and Eve fell into sin. And then God promised them the seed of the woman. He said in uh, Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent, to Satan, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the earliest, earliest statement to have anything to do with God doing something to smash, sending somebody to smash the works of Satan. And of course, that's expanded. Um, This introduced us to the concept of salvation from sin by way of the seed of the woman. And that concept is expanded throughout the Bible. The rest of the book, the rest of the Old Testament takes us on a journey uh, up to the revelation of the seed of the woman who we know to be Jesus Christ. Now, if we're to miss this key verse, the rest of the book would seem like a collection of random stories about a a bunch of people that God liked for no obvious reason and people that God did not like. Uh, After Abraham, we had Cain, who who Eve thought was going to be the seed of the woman. Behold, I've produced a man-child. And after that was Abel, and after Abel's death at the hands of Cain, uh, we're introduced to Seth, from who the seed of the woman actually comes. And then things get worse and worse on earth, and God calls Noah to build an ark, and thus the seed of the woman uh, would continue, even though the world was wiped out by flood. We move forward to the next major player, Abraham, Abram or Abraham. And God said to him, indeed, I will build through you a great nation and a great people through whom all peoples of the earth would be blessed. And of course, the seed of the woman went through Abraham. And the promised seed of the woman continues through Abraham to Isaac. And then uh, from Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob received a new name from God. Jacob gets the new name of Israel, so it's interchangeable. Uh, Israel has 12 sons. And now while the text of Genesis does not yet say the seed of the woman continues through Judah, it does. Judah's the next one in line. But Genesis does not focus favorably on Judah. It takes us to Joseph. An odd turn of events goes on here, something we want to notice. Um, Now, while we summarize Genesis, uh, emphasizing the seed of the woman, you know there's more to the rest of the story. Gunnar went in depth about 
um, the long version, if you will, a little deeper into creation, uh, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, Jacob and Laban's house, and what that was like, and all the stories you learned to love while you're attending Sunday school as a child. These are the things we pass on. So it's worth mentioning that among the adults in this church and in many of our churches uh, locally, um, many of us came to faith as adults and never had the opportunity to sit in kids' Sunday school and learn these great stories. They're, they're all new to us, these great lessons from the Old Testament. So we really, in this land, the Bible says, behold, there's a famine in the land, uh, we're a people that are really starved of biblical knowledge and biblical application. Um, don't think that what you're learning here is irrelevant to society. People want to know this stuff. Uh, Michelle and I are so thankful that God has given us a church and a pastor who teaches the Word of God cover to cover. We value the Word of God here. And that said, um, we parents and grandparents should really make it our priority to make these stories uh, real and alive to our little ones. It's really important. And I'm not giving you a bully pulpit. That's not what I'm doing here. This comes to mind to me because looking at Joseph at about age 17, who in the next couple chapters will learn, it gets into some real problems. Um, somehow, the truths, the reality of God Almighty had already been permeated into his heart and his mind. He knew God. He understood God at age 17. And true too for Daniel. Later on, Daniel, he's deported to Babylon about the same age as Joseph, maybe, and already he had a deep connection with his living God. So where did they get this from? Where did it come from? Well, certainly it was at home on their mama's knee. They get it young. I was totally blessed when my uh, six-year-old Jed um, explained to Grammy that um, David had to flee from Saul. And she said, well, Jed, where did you learn that? And he said, oh, my dad read that to me. His dad's 8,000 miles away in deployment. That's lovely to me. Good job, Grammy. Good job. There are many resources available to, uh, if you're, if you're less familiar with these stories, there's many resources to highlight these stories to your kids' kids. But a word of warning, um, not all the material out there in the market today is probably the best. Uh, some of it's morphed God's word and the merely teachings about being nice, nice. And others treat these things as histories like fables. So do be discerning when you're picking out which uh, storybook Bible to send to your grandkids. And uh, there are many moms in this audience who can point you to some good curriculums and help you steer away from other curriculums that aren't so good. Right, Christine? Yeah. Okay. There's moms you can go to. Um, they know these things. So we are responsible for the truths and untruths that we pass on to our children and grandchildren. Amen? Okay. On to the true here of the story, Joseph. Now, Joseph is the focus of 11 chapters out of the 50 chapters of Genesis. Yet Joseph is not in the line of Christ. He has no uh, blood bearing on the seed of the woman. Very odd twist. God's main intent for giving us insight into Joseph is to show us how God sovereignly preserves the seed of the woman. Uh, still, that journey is really full of rich application. So there's a lot of things we can take away from Joseph's life to apply to our life, things that really, things that really matter, uh, truths that we can cling to today. Uh, the most fascinating truths um, are really those lessons that God reveals about himself. What is God like? God is revealed in Genesis. 
should cause each of us to reevaluate our perceptions of what we think God is or what he's like. Uh, That said, it seems appropriate to introduce us to one of the things that God does. He does this thing called biblical typology. Oh, John, here's that stuff again. I know. Biblical typology. God, God works this way, so I'm going to explain it real quickly. By definition, and this is a pagan definition, it's not a Christian definition, people know this. Biblical typology, or typological symbolism, is a Christian form of biblical interpretation that proceeds on the assumption that God placed anticipations of Christ in the laws, events, and people of the Old Testament. You see, the Bible is riddled with inner indications or references that to show us that we should be looking for the coming Messiah. The Bible is riddled with hints, clues, telling us what he would be like and what he would do when he got here. So when Jesus did come on the scene, he would be recognizable as the Messiah by anyone who, who read the scriptures, anyone who knew the scriptures. And hence we have the words of John the Baptist. Behold, John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. After me comes, this is the man that I said, after me comes a man who of higher rank, for he existed before me. See, John knew that from the Old Testament. He got that. He recognized the Messiah coming. And then Philip, you got to love Philip. Hey, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. These people were looking for Jesus about the same time that Jesus came on the scene. Are you looking for Jesus today? Joseph is universally accepted as a type of Christ. There's just a ton of things about Joseph. He's not Christ, but there's a bunch of stuff from Joseph that show us what Christ would be like. Okay, so as we study Joseph over the next 11 chapters, do take note of the similarities common to Joseph and Jesus. Uh, God put it in there, so it's important. So let's jump in, Genesis 37. I know, five pages, and I'm just now starting. It was three pages till this morning. But as I was doing my last review this morning, I realized something. I could no longer read my 12 font without glasses. I had to run down and boost it up a little bit. Oh, these are bad days indeed. Bad, bad days. (laughs) Genesis 37. Uh, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And these are the records of of the generation's of Jacob. Joseph, stop right there. That actually um, is, is noticeably different from the norm. It's something that should stick out to you because usually the records of the generations move from the father to the firstborn. You see, without Joseph, so, but that go, this goes right to Joseph. Uh, you see, without Joseph's intervention and provision during a time of famine, uh, there would have been no generations of Jacob, period. Joseph is a major player in God's plan. Verse 2, Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. So take note, 17-year-olds, you are still youths. Okay. Along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Okay, Jacob slash Israel had four wives, Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilphah. So which one was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin? Rachel, very good. Now, why is Joseph tending goats with the sons of Zilphah and Bilhah and not with the sons of Leah? Hmm, makes one wonder. Take that home with you. Verse 3, now, 
Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic or a richly ornamented robe if you're NIV. Uh, Earlier in the story, we had already made mention of the dysfunctional nature of Jacob's parenting style, okay? Gunner's already kind of hit that. And some like to make a big deal out of this and draw conclusions about child rearing uh, from the patriarchs. And and if you do that, uh, you're probably on okay ground. Still, we need to agree that the emphasis of the story, the primary flow here, the aim, if you will, of the passage really has nothing to do with how one should raise their child. So what's going on here? We read on verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. You know, I pray daily uh, for my children out of uh, Proverbs 3 that they would find favor in the eyes of God and man. We want people to think favorably of us. Well, clearly in in his own family, Joseph is not thought favorably of. At the core of the hatred of Joseph is his father's love for him. That's what they're jealous of. Uh, with the brother's predisposition towards hatred, um, they find fault probably in whatever Joseph said or did. They didn't like Joseph. Now, one wonders why, since he was so hated, why would he share this next dream aloud amongst his brothers? Okay, wonder that all you like. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to the dream which I have had, for behold, again, we are binding sheaves and yours bowed down to mine. And his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Boy, they hate this guy. Okay, is it wise to be transparent? You decide. I asked you earlier, have you ever found yourself, regretfully so, to have been too transparent with a given audience? Probably you have at some point. Um, there's much debate as to the wisdom uh, or the lack of wisdom of Joseph sharing his dream. Uh, God doesn't debate it, but people talk ever since then. What determines the wisest course here, one you should speak and one you should not speak? Is it the potential response of men that should dictate what you say and what you don't say? Or are there sometimes things that just need to be said because they were correct and right? Um, are there certain truths that we are meant to share regardless of response. I think there probably are. And, and how are we to know the difference? Well, you have to have wisdom. Verse 9. Now, he still had another dream and related it to his brothers. And he said, lo, I had still another dream. And behold, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers. And the father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow yourselves down before the ground to you? It's interesting because Rachel is already dead by now, so <clears throat> interesting phrase. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the sayings in his mind. The father kept the sayings in his mind. Isn't it interesting that no one questions the truth of the dream, or the, the truth that he had a dream, <clears throat> excuse me, rather, they were upset with the content of the dreams. Why do you suppose the brothers hated Joseph for the first dream, but were jealous of him regarding the second dream? Hmm, something to think about. I don't know. But his father kept the sayings in his mind. This reminds us of Mary in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Of course, talking about Jesus. And then, of course, Moses' parents. Um, they saw he was no ordinary child. Sometimes the Spirit of God 
is a parent on a child. And we parents should capitalize on the opportunities to train up that child in the way that they should go. And people debate the character of young Joseph. But from the text, from the text, was Joseph a good and caring keeper of his father's interests or a self-promoting pompous snitch? I would suggest from the information given, and we do not have all the information, just what God has given, that Joseph was an innocent boy of 17 who reveled in his father's favor and thought he was in a loving family. Boy, was he wrong. There's a principle here from Joseph's life. And that's one thing we do in narrative literature is we draw out principles to apply. The principle, obedience to God may bring a backlash from men. Obedience to God may bring a backlash from men. Amen? There's this misconception within the realm of religion that if I'm good, my life will be easy and blessed. The reality is that God's blessings may be in the form of trials and difficulties. So consider, how has God placed you in a position of favor? Where are you stationed? Where has he put you? Where has he planted you? And when have you experienced hatred for simply doing your job? And then is there a time when you were unappreciated for your transparency? Obedience to God may bring a backlash from men, but that's okay. Verse 12, then his brothers went to to pastor their father's flock in Shechem. There's a whole bunch on that statement. Did did they take Joseph with them? No. (laughs) What happened at Shechem? Remember Shechem? About 10 to 15 years earlier, Leah's daughter Dinah was sexually assaulted at Shechem. Remember the story? Gunner shared it, all nervous and stuff, not want to go too deep into it. The people of Shechem tried to make right by marrying daughter into the family of one of those uh, groups in Shechem. And, and Dinah's brother took it upon, brothers took it upon themselves to agree to the marriage so long as the males of Shechem were first circumcised so they would not be offensive to us. And of course, they complied. This is a good deal. We get all of his stuff. He gets our stuff. We're going to join together. And later, while the men of Shechem were in pain, Two of Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, can you say sociopaths? Yes. Killed all of the men of Shechem and felt just fine about it. Stood up for it, stuck up, said, you didn't do anything, Dad. Now, do you think that made an impression in the area of Shechem? I'm sure it did. So now all the brothers, lest Joseph and Benjamin, go off toward Shechem to graze the flocks. And this caused some stress for Jacob. You can imagine why, because he loved these boys too. He didn't want to see anything bad happen to them. And he knew Shechem was not a good place in their their family history. Verse 13, Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Obedience, I love it. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And he found uh, a man found him, and he said, "Hey, uh, behold!" Uh, he's wandering a field. He says, "What are you looking for? What are you looking for? How is it? Do you suppose that a man is at Shechem? Fifteen years later, they're all wiped out. I don't know. Weren't they all wiped out? Just you know, just how I think. Okay, verse sixteen. Well, I'm looking for my brothers." 
Please tell me where they are. And the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let's, let us go to Do- Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So obviously this man was aware of who Joseph's brothers were. They made an impression. And he'd even been, even been close enough to them to hear this conversation. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them at Dothan. And verse 18, when he saw, when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Now it is interesting to me that Joseph apparently is traveling alone. Riding his donkey or whatever, traveling alone. Uh, okay, back to Joseph as a type of Christ. How, how is Joseph like Jesus? Well, we have a couple things so far, and there'll be more. First of all, he is his father's most beloved. He is, you could say hated, but I'll just say disregarded by his brothers. Conspired to be killed for doing his father's will. And we're about to add to that, suffering for doing what is right. And the list will go on later. Now, for those of you who have the opportunity to teach this passage, I know I have teachers in here. If you have the time, using Joseph as a type of Christ uh, can be an open door to introducing Jesus Christ and the gospel from this passage. But I digress. Do that what you will. Uh, verse 19. Uh, they said to one another, the brothers here, here comes that dreamer. Oh, they're calling him names. That's not good. I'm admittedly reading into the text here, but I envision, this is me, not, not the Bible, I envision alcohol may have been a factor in this, but that's just what I think. Okay, verse 20. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him to one of these pits, and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. <laughs> but Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Interesting. What is Reuben's position in the birth order of the sons of Jacob? Firstborn, right? Firstborn, that's important. So I, he's nearing, he should be nearing 40 years old if I'm doing my math right. Not exactly, but nearing 40. Why do you suppose is Reuben trying to rescue Joseph from being killed? I don't know. In fact, why is it okay to ask questions like this when the text doesn't tell us? Because God wants us to use our minds and interact with his book. That's okay. We should be thinking through these differences and then saying, God, why did Reuben want to keep Joseph from being killed? That's how you interact with the text and with God. And God will teach you things over the years if we do that. That's a far cry different than imposing your own beliefs on the text. But be, be willing to catch these things and ask God questions. Um, I know uh, to some people the uh, physical Bible, the piece of paper, is sacred, and you couldn't possibly think of writing in it, except for the place in front that says name, and you put it there. Um, I'm a big believer that as you go through your uh, text of Scripture, you put little marks like question marks and exclamations and stars and sad faces and things like that to kind of interact with the text, but that's just me. Okay, so interacting with text is actively thinking through the Bible, and it's okay when we refrain from imprinting our conclusions on the text. Uh, I do believe that God loves us to ask, Lord, why did you put that there? I think that's important. Again, Reuben, verse 22. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. That 
he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So, do we know Reuben's intent? Yeah, he wants to rescue him. Did Joseph know Reuben's intent? Probably not. Okay, back to Joseph's point of view. After missing his brothers at Shechem, he finds them at Dothan, riding his mule. What luck! I found my brothers at Dothan. And the sun is probably setting, probably the end of the day, there, uh, thereabouts. And he can probably see his brothers beginning to gather around an open fire making dinner or something like that. I'm making a scene here. It's not in the Bible. I'm making this up. And Joseph's probably thinking, oh boy, hot chow. Okay. And look, they see me coming. And, and there's a lot of movement. And they're looking at me. Maybe they're excited to see me. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Maybe, uh, maybe they're standing and waving. Who knows? Well, Joseph's in for a shock. He's in for a big shock, if that's what he thought. Verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Just think for a second. Oh, the utter betrayal. Put yourself in 17-year-old Joseph's mind. I'm out there serving my dad. I'm really kind of the manager, even though I'm the youngest. Who here has ever been a manager of people older than them? Yeah. They resent you for it? Yeah. And all of us, but it's his brothers. It's his family. He shares dreams with them. And now dad's not around and they rip his coat from him and they throw him into a pit. Just the betrayal is something that's hard. Can you just see him down there weeping? You ever been betrayed by a close friend? By someone close to you? You ever suffer betrayal? These are real things. Can you empathize with the abject, abject betrayal felt by Joseph? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Now, it's noteworthy that while Joseph is not in the lineage of the son of the seed of the woman Jesus, Joseph is a biblical type of Christ. So recall that Joseph too was betrayed, or that Jesus too was betrayed by those close to him. Um, Psalm 41 reflects this very intimately. Uh, Psalm 41 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And again in Psalm 55, he says, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. No, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself over me. Then I could hide my face from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. Oh, the betrayal. Uh, this is a common thing in humankind. If you haven't experienced it, you will. I'm sure most of us probably have. And this is not the only time that Joseph will uh, suffer betrayal. There's more yet to come. Uh, same with David, who wrote those Psalms I just read, and uh, with Jesus, and with Paul, and with Job, and with Jeremiah, and with Obadiah, and the list goes on. God's men on the scene suffer betrayal. You see a pattern? The Bible tells us, 2 Timothy 3, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise from God almost, huh? Is that part of your gospel message? Hi, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you're going to be persecuted. Sign the line, yeah. If anyone tells you otherwise, they're really selling you a bill of goods. This is real Christianity 101. And the suffering of the saints may be eerily 
familiar with the sufferings of Christ. Paul puts it this way. He introduces this concept in a very, very challenging verse. This is a very difficult verse. Uh, if you want to go home and play with this and crack it open, please feel free. Colossians 1.24, he says, now, this is Paul, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So somehow Christ's afflictions here are, are tied to Paul's afflictions. Moreover, there is this godly purpose. There is a godly purpose in our sufferings. They're not random. Second uh, Corinthians 1.5, Paul says it this way, For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. You see, the suffering that we suffer is meant to drive us to the supreme comforter, God Almighty, who can comfort us in a way that nobody else can. Do you want more of Jesus? Do you want more of Jesus? Do you want to know Jesus in a deeper, deeper way? There's still so much more. If so, there is an aspect of knowledge that can only come through sharing in his sufferings. Paul expresses this again, uh, Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ. Do you want to know Christ? Is that why you're here? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Wow. There is a depth, a depth of intimacy that can only be shared by those who have persevered through similar trials. That's why, that's why moms that have kids are always like, oh, you, they talk about the, 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 the delivery and stuff like that. And people who have walked the cancer battle, there's a bond there. There's, there's just something that uh, people only share by, by being in the same foxhole together. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Knowing Jesus deeper is not the end game in God's curriculum of suffering in your life. That's not the ultimate purpose. There's yet another purpose, 2 Corinthians 4.10. Listen to this now. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Somehow, your suffering in the cause of Christ makes you a billboard for the message of Christ. You want to have a powerful and effective witness for Jesus? Then persevere while clinging to him through whatever journey of suffering he takes you, and it will pay dividends. It will pay dividends. And there's some good news. Certainly Joseph's transparency, his innocent indiscretion, when added to the favoritism of his father, was a catalyst for Joseph's plight. Okay. But that said, the source of your suffering, whether it be your sin or my sin or nobody's sin, is really irrelevant when considering the potential value of suffering. No matter how you got into a predicament, the answer is always the same. Cling to Jesus for rescue. Cling to Jesus for rescue. Okay, back to the brothers. How cold-hearted are these guys? One wonders if, after murdering, murdering those in Shechem, it's now much easier to murder Joseph. Unrepented sin dulls our senses and quenches our conscience so that the same, 
the the sin seems easier on the next occasion, and then the next occasion, and then the next occasion. And we learn later that Joseph cried out from the pit, Genesis 42, later on you'll get this. He says, um, then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw, listen, this is, they saw this in the pit. You ready? Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come on us. So callous are, the, are these siblings that they rejoice to see the way, uh, a way to make some money instead of just simply killing Joseph. Hey, look, there's a caravan. We can make some money. Uh, verse 25, then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, and their camels bearing uh, aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, and on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And, and Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. And then some Midianites trader, traders passed by. Uh, so they pulled Joseph out of the pit and they lifted him up and they sold him the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. Now, since the Bible makes note of it, we probably should make note of it too. Uh, it was Judah who introduced the plan to sell Joseph uh, instead of killing him. Judah is, in fact, the son of Jacob, who will continue the line of Christ or the seed of the woman. And I suppose that may cause some of us to look favorably on Judah, as if Judah was performing some noble effort uh, to save Joseph's life. So you decide for yourself. As for me, I'm, I'm quite sickened by the false piety of the statement, after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And I suggest that each of us take time to read Genesis 38, the next chapter, uh, on your own. And there you're going to see what a warped view of righteousness Judah really has. He's a challenged individual. Uh, still, thanks be to God that rascals like Judah are in the line of Christ, because that gives hope to rascals like us, that God can both save and restore us. Okay, so Reuben, the oldest, after leading his brothers to put Joseph into a pit, seems to have removed himself from the scene for perhaps several hours. Uh, he misses the whole caravan scene. Verse 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? Where is he? Where do I find him? And I don't know Reuben's options at this point. But I do know which option he chose. Do you think he uh, took his share of the 20, she 20 shekels? He thinks, oh well, stick to the plan. Verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood. And they sent the very colored, tu colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we, we found this. Please examine it and see whether it is your son's tunic or not. What, the, what did that scene look like? Were they all, was Judah doing the talking? Were they all kind of like looking at each other or all looking down at the ground or acting like they're distressed at the implication that Joseph was dead? 
They never mentioned they actually saw Joseph, did they? We just found this tunic on the ground. And while it may be a cultural grammatical issue, note that Joseph is not mentioned by name. See if this is your son, because uh, Jacob does the same thing. Verse 33, then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. He concludes, a wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Verse 34, so Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth, sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters, there's other daughters beside Dinah apparently, we don't know who they are though, and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Okay. How does a family hold together after carrying out such a conspiracy. The cop in me says that with 10 co-conspirators, somebody's bound to talk. Someone's going to talk. People talk. And one would anticipate that the conspirators would maybe begin to distance themselves from one another. In fact, that seems to be what we see in Genesis 38. When you read it for yourself, um, Judah relocates. He goes away uh, for a long time. But still, the text shifts back to our protagonist, Joseph. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now, in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about the good, sovereign purposes of God. Uh, the, certainly the, the, the key attribute of God through this whole story is the sovereignty of God, the, the ability of God to carry out, carry out his plan regardless of the frailty of people or sin around or anything else, nothing thwarts God. But the principle we get here for us is this. Suffering is not a sign of God's abandonment. Suffering is not a sign of God's abandonment. If you're suffering, God has not abandoned you. So, have you found in your life right now that maybe you've dug, yourself, dug a hole, you've dug yourself deep into a pit? Well, the first rule is quit digging. But next, turn to Jesus and cling to his abundant and merciful power to maximize the benefit from your current predicament. I mean, some, some things seem just, just, just overwhelming, only because they are. But you know, for some people, perhaps you, it takes overwhelming to drive you to Jesus. But for those of you who have been driven to Jesus, overwhelming is an opportunity to cling to him and get closer to him than you can ever imagine possible. Is the big problem working? Are the test results not what you would hope for? Has someone betrayed and abandoned you? Suffering is not a sign of God's abandonment. He is not done with you. He has not betrayed you. Or even that he is displeased with you. Suffering does not mean God's displeased with you. Still, the answer is always the same. Turn to Jesus, cling to his abundant and merciful power in maximizing the benefit from your current predicament. 
Before I close, there's a warning you get from a book written by a guy named Charles Stanley, a book called How to Handle Adversity. I give it out. I read it repeatedly. And he warns that suffering can be wasted. Suffering is an opportunity that can be wasted. If you're in the midst of suffering, respond correctly. Turn to Jesus. Cling to him and call for his benefits. So where do you need to cling to Jesus for rescue today? You know where it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for for what you've put in the Bible, and we thank you for what you've left out. You know the curriculum. You, You know right now the curriculum that you have for each of us for our future. You know what the next phone call will bring. You know what tomorrow will bring. You know what the next paycheck might not bring. You know the next election. You know the next the next thing we're supposed to, global warming, whatever the next crisis, you know all these things. And none of them catch you by surprise. And none of them are outside of your control or your doing. So Father, help us this week, even this day, to be people that know the benefit of clinging to you regardless of the problem and help us to learn to live our faith forward in these matters. In Jesus' name, amen.